Hello and welcome. This is Dr. Stuart Tully for History 327. And today we're going to be talking about the golden age of the middle class. The golden age of the middle class, pretty much 1950s prosperity, uh, money, you know, howdy doody, all that good stuff. So why don't you go on, open up the PowerPoint, and we'll get started with boom! So believe it or not, prior to the 1950s, um, the U.S. actually had a decreasing population growth. Uh, the U.S. population growth was actually decreasing prior to the 1950s. Various reasons for that. Um, a pretty big um, cause, though, were the immigration quotas that had been put in place in 1924. Uh, basically, the immigration quotas had changed in 1924, I should say, uh, limiting the immigration from certain countries and pretty much limiting the number of immigrants in general. Uh, another reason is the Great Depression. Uh, the Great Depression caused a low birth rate for fairly obvious reasons. Um, how do I say this politely? Well, whatever. You're all adults here. Um, people don't... I mean, accidents happen, but generally people don't like try to have kids unless they can afford them. And the Great Depression made it very unlikely for people to be able to have children, to afford children, so they're less likely to have children. They could still do the thing that makes you have children, but they're less likely to do things like get married um, or, or, in particular, try to have children. And it's still a little bit before modern-day birth control, but still, there, there are ways you can limit your uh, probability of having a child. And also, uh, World War II in general, puts a damper on immigration. Uh, the World War II, the World War II, World War II was a universal war. By universal, I mean global war. It's all over. Uh, not a lot of people are wanting to immigrate. Not a lot of people are in a position where they can immigrate. And so once the war is over, though, the final two reasons are really put aside. Um, you know, the war is over, so that's one reason why people could immigrate. But also, uh, people are doing a lot better financially. Uh, the war increased wages. Uh, we talked about probably a little bit before. World War II was really good and big for U.S. industrialization. Uh, very big for manufacturing. And pretty much the U.S. economy is doing really well. And, you know, even though it could be seen as like there might be a bust coming, uh, unlike 1920. Uh, where the, uh, the, the Roaring Twenties were kind of predicated upon, oh, you know, the rest of the world might catch up to us. Uh, pretty much the rest of the world was bombed. It was like bombed to all hell, and the U.S. had plenty of available markets. And because of that, people now have more money in their pocket. And when people have more money in their pocket, they're more likely to have children. Now, don't get me wrong, you can still do the thing that makes you have kids and, and not have children, but that said, people are more likely to pursue having children, uh, pursue getting married, and children were kind of a natural side effect of uh, this economic prosperity. Uh, in general, when economies are good, people are more likely to have kids. Likewise, when economies are bad, people are less likely to have kids. Um, that's, just, that's, just, that's just economics, folks. That's just economics. Now, because of this, you have the baby boom. The baby boom happens. And I cannot iterate this enough. The sheer amount of small children totally changed demographics. Uh, there are a ton of people in the baby boom. They're still probably our largest demographic. Um, yes, I know they say like millennials and Zoomers or Gen Z or whatever they call those kids are, are a higher number. But just for the sheer proportion, 
that you know were be- these baby boomers in this time period, they really changed the country's demographics. Uh, the country actually starts growing, has an increasing population for the first time in many, many decades. And they're just children everywhere. They're children everywhere. And just the sheer amount of children really changed the country's perception of childhood. This sounds weird, but, but stick with me for a second. Uh, before the 1950s in the United States, children generally were thought of as small adults. Uh, they were thought as, you know, small adults, uh, small individuals. They're ready to work. Uh, there's really no idea about you know protecting childhood or like trying to give them everything they can. Now this has really switched. This has really switched uh, because of the 19 well late 40s, early 50s with the baby boom. Children are now a focus. Children are now deemed important enough to protect the idea that uh, somebody should have a childhood. Your child should have a childhood where they are free from adult uh, worries and the expectation to work. And a lot of that, once again, has to do with the economy. Children worked in the past because they, it was an economic necessity. But now that children are no longer in a position where they have to work, and remember, the people who are having these children, uh, the parents of these baby boomers, are people who were, you know, generally, you know, if they're born in the teens and 20s, they were small children during the Great Depression, followed up almost immediately by World War II. They didn't have very much of a childhood. They didn't have very much of a childhood, and now they want to give their own children what they couldn't have. Now, because of all this, and also remember, uh, you have the deindustrialization, the demilitarization after World War II. You have the soldiers returning home. You have veterans returning home, going back to work. And as I mentioned before, there was a worry that you know production and manufacturing speeds and uh, output productivity had increased so much there was not enough work to go around. Because of this, they start institutioning things to kind of ration the amount of way that people work. Uh, the big one is the eight-hour workday and the 40-hour work week. That really becomes standardized kind of during the Depression as a way to ration work, but by the time we get to the 50s, it really becomes the expectation. You have an eight-hour workday, 40 hours a week that you work. This is considerably smaller than the previous um, expectation for work. Uh, if we're talking like, uh, you know, 1890s, 19-teens, even as late as the 1920s, um, 12-hour workday was the expectation, uh, six days a week, too. So if you do math, that's about 72 hours a week. Uh, now they've pretty much half that, going from 72 hours a week to 40 hours a week. This gives people a lot more free time, a lot more spare time. And naturally, people want to spend their free time doing things they like, and children are a nice way to spend your time. In addition, with incomes rising, it was possible to have a single breadwinner family. Once again, this is something that a lot of baby boomers considered was the norm, but it was actually a bit of an aberration before the 1950s, is a family where only the husband worked. Yes, that did happen in very wealthy families, but most working class, and certainly most lower class families, uh, you would have the wife working, and oftentimes the children working too. In fact, not even oftentimes, most of the time, the children would be working in some form or fashion. But now, because the income levels are rising, it's more likely for even middle and lower, not lower, but working classes to have a single breadwinner family. So the idea that a man could work by himself, uh, you know, go off to work, work at a factory or work something like that, may or may not have a college education, and provide a life that's it's a comfortable life, a very higher standard of living than pretty much any Americans had had before. We're going to get into that in a second 
Women could now stay with children. That later becomes the expectation, particularly for middle class and even working class women. Uh, Upper class women might have had that opportunity before, but now more women are getting the opportunity to stay at home, which is a luxury that most American women never had in U.S. history. Before this time, most American women were expected to work in some form or fashion, maybe in the house, maybe outside the house. But now the idea that, hey, you can stay at home and help raise the children, and remember, children are now seen as something a bit different than small adults, not necessary to work. You can, you know, help them do whatever they want. Uh, There is a very strong, and I mean strong desire, a very strong desire for these parents to give their children what they never had in the Great Depression. This is a very common thing. Maybe some of y'all listening to this are parents. I'm a parent now. I have a, I have a five-month-old little baby boy, and I want to give that kid everything. And it's not like I grew up, you know, I mean, I grew up fairly middle class, you know, fairly comfortable. Um, I, I wouldn't say we were rich, but we, we definitely never really worried about, you know, finances. And even in that, I, I want to give my kid, uh, Ben, even better than I had it. And that's a very normal thing. Those of you who are, who are parents, I guarantee you feel the same way. No matter what you have, you want to give your kids better than what you have it. And now, because of the economic prosperity of the country, uh, American families have a chance to give it. Because if you go over one slide, you're going to see economic boom. Guys, this is central to everything. Everything is the economic boom. The manufacturing economy in the United States following World War II was an exceptionally good. It was exceptionally good, exceptionally, exceptionally good. Uh, The average national income rose about a third during the 1950s. That is ludicrous. That is a ludicrous, ludicrous, ludicrous number right there. When you talk about your income, the household incomes going up an entire third, an entire third throughout a decade, that is bonkers. But it happens during the 50s. And by the way, this is not just for um, you know white Americans. Uh, yes, white Americans are definitely a little bit more on the um, you know good side, not good side. Uh, the they've definitely stacked the deck in their favor, shall we say? But actually. Pretty much across all demographics, across all demographics, uh, race, sex, um, even financial status, you know, even poor folks in general had their household incomes raise about a third during the 1950s. Another thing that's very good for economics, very good for uh, a person's wealth in general, uh, wealth is different than your income. Wealth is just like, like the money you have, your estate, homeownership. Uh, goes tremendously up during the 50s. I cannot iterate that enough. Home ownership goes way higher in the 50s uh, based upon the foundation that was laid during the Great Depression of things like the Federal Housing Authority. And basically, they totally changed the way they did mortgages uh, during the Great Depression. Prior to the Great Depression, uh, most mortgages were about five to 10 years. Honestly, most of them were five years with a balloon payment at the end. Um, Only the very, very rich could own houses because you had to pay this loan off fairly quickly. But now, in the great uh, during the Great Depression, the Federal Housing Authority made things like the fifteen and particularly the thirty-year loan become the norm. The thirty-year loan became the norm. Now, granted, most people during the Great Depression still couldn't handle it, still couldn't afford it. But now, thanks to the nineteen fifties, everybody can really afford this. Home ownership goes up to about. Six out of every 10 houses are owned by its occupants. 
I'll repeat that. Six out of every ten houses, so if you reduce that fraction, three out of every five houses, more than 50%, about 60% of all houses are owned by its occupants, which is not the norm for U.S. history. Um, home ownership, particularly you live in the home that you, sorry, you own the place that you live in, is not the norm for most of U.S. history, particularly in things like cities. Uh, think of a place like New York or Chicago or, or Philadelphia. Uh, very much apartments, very much apartments. Uh, you don't own an apartment, you rent an apartment. Maybe your apartment goes condo so you can buy the apartment, but still, that's that's not the norm in most big cities. Now, thanks to the development of suburbs and other things, uh, there is now much, 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 much more home ownership. Home ownership is great for wealth because, in general, homes appreciate in value. Homes pretty much always go up in value, but you only pay for what the home was originally purchased for. And if we're if we're talking over you know fifteen or particularly thirty years, your home could really increase in value. And not just that, as the house appreciates in value, your percentage of ownership of the house goes up. You have more of a a stake in the house that brings up your wealth. You can borrow against it, you know, borrow against the value of your home, your equity in your home to do things like start a business or put your th- kids through college or anything like that. Uh, uh, this is, this is very different for us history, but I would say it's a fairly good thing. Are there issues with race? Yes, there is. We'll talk about that a bit more later with things like redlining, but for your quote unquote average American, Uh, They are much more likely to own a home. They're much more likely to own a home. Also, unemployment is incredibly low. Unemployment is incredibly low during uh, the 1950s. Now, it's not as low as the war years. It's not as low as the war years. However, unemployment is still down to about 5%, which is significantly lower than the Great Depression, significantly, significantly lower than the Great Depression. A little bit higher than the war, but then again, the war was a bit of an aberration because uh, wartime industries were hiring folks all the time. It was a sizable short percentage of the U.S. economy. But now, war's over. Not as much wartime manufacturing is going on. But still, unemployment is fairly low, about 5%. With low unemployment, more people are having money. So, that is the boom. Now, why is there a boom? Why is there a boom? Well... A lot of it has to do with the baby boomers. Uh, those of you who do not know about babies, those of you who have babies know this, and I'm definitely learning this now, uh, babies are like a bottomless pit of uh, spending money. <laughs> you cannot overspend on baby stuff. Uh, I, in fact, before I recorded this, I just went to the store to buy some baby things for my baby. Uh, you know, some of it was necessities, but a lot of it was not necessities. A lot of it was just like getting him more baby Yoda outfits because I think that is cute. But not, aside from like the little pendicky things, like the little silly things, uh, other things are needed. For instance, home construction goes way up. Uh, now that more people can afford a home and there's uh, more demand for homes because more people can afford them and more people are interested in getting um, you know, a decent-sized parcel of land somewhere, maybe not an apartment, home construction goes way up. They couldn't do this during the war because, well, the war was going on. And a lot of the things you need to build a house, like wood and steel, were needed for the war, but now the war's over. Wow, my goodness, it is much more common for houses to be constructed. Houses are being constructed. 
Um, I built a house myself this past year, and I can tell you, a lot of people build your house. It's not just one guy. I mean, yeah, you might have the contractor, but he gets plumbers, electricians, and roofers, and framers, and cement guys, and landscapers, and I'm trying to think of all the other people who came in, finishers, I forgot the finishers, um, HVAC people, you know, putting in your heating and air conditioning. That's a lot of people who get money off of the building of your house. It's a fairly stable job. Uh, it's a fairly good job for people too. Uh, not only, and that's often d- driven by these children. You know, babies want a house. And in fact, that's one of the reasons why we built our house. Uh, we didn't know about our baby quite yet, but my wife and I knew we were on the adoption waiting list. And we're like, hey, the house we have right now, it's, it's good for us. But if we had a baby, it might be a little tight. So we should build a bigger house. We did that for the baby. Uh, auto manufacturing goes w- way up. Once again, also driven by children. Also driven by children, but also the end of the war. Also the end of the war. Uh, during the World War II, not a lot of cars were manufactured. In fact, almost no cars were manufactured because the auto industries were building tanks and you know airplanes and other vehicles for the war effort. But now that it's over, um, they still have that productivity. They have all these new assembly lines that they can build cars even faster. And now more and more people want cars and they want bigger cars for baby. Everybody wants cars for a baby. Uh, another thing that goes way up, these are kind of traditional things, but things like appliances, furniture, clothing, recreational equipment, food and pharmaceuticals. These are kind of traditional industries. They're going way up because of not just the babies, but the increase in population. Uh, you know, appliances. Now these appliances, um, vacuum cleaners, dishwashers, ref- electric refrigerators, all these things are much more um, available for your average citizen who could not afford them during World War II. Uh, sorry, during the Great Depression or World War II, honestly. Furniture. Uh, kids need furniture. We, we bought more furniture for my son. We had to get him a crib and we got him a little nightstand and a little changing pad. And, you know, furniture costs money. If you want good furniture, it costs money. It's another industry. Clothing. I already talked about that. Um, kids need clothing, but everybody needs clothing. Recreational equipment. You know, things like boats and, you know, just kind of fun things because now people have more time. They are not working as much. You know, if you just half your workday from 72, sorry, from 12 hours to 8 hours or from 72 hours a week to 40 hours a week, you have more free time. And plus, the time you might have spent doing household chores is now being taken, you know, done by dishwashers and things. So you have more free time. You want to spend it doing fun stuff. Food. Come on. Babies eat. Everybody eats. Babies get sick. They need pharmaceuticals. Those are the traditional industries, but also you have new industries. New industries are coming up all over the place. Um, electronics. Electronics get a lot bigger. Um, the Pretty much the prototypical electronic that represents this is televisions. Televisions is the big one. Uh, by the beginning of 1950, about 10% or so of the U.S. population had a television. By the end of the 50s, by 59, it's up to about 90% of the U.S. population owns a television. It's a big deal, the TV. Not just that, but plastics. Plastics are becoming a much more um, available resource for building things. It makes things even cheaper, which people tend to like. Air travel is another industry that really gets big during this time period. It gets very big during this time period. It's a new one uh, because air travel becomes a lot cheaper. Uh, before the 1950s, air travel was something reserved only for the super, super, super rich. And it kind of, it was, it was, 
expensive. It was expensive. It wasn't as conducive as train travel. It was faster than train travel, but still, it was very expensive. But now it becomes much cheaper. And by the time we get to 1957, the number of train passengers is outpaced by the number of plane passengers. More people are flying airplanes in 1957. If you go over one slide, this is the heyday of the modern corporation. All right, this is where you have your super big companies. Really big companies come into vogue. Very big companies, um, very large companies, because they pretty much have almost no competition. I bet you're thinking, wait a minute, you know, the, the, the auto manufacturers, the big three, they have no competition? Well, outside of each other, no. Uh, there are no really foreign cars in this time period. There is no Toyota. There is no BMW. Pretty much nobody else in the entire world is making automobiles because they're devastated by World War II. And so Detroit, the big three, you know, Chevrolet, well, General Motors, uh, Dodge, um, and Ford, they're making money hand over fist. They're making big sales, and the employees are very, very, very well compensated. They are incredibly well compensated. Uh, pensions are high. In fact, they're bringing in pensions for basically they're trying to give people an incentive not to work anymore so other people can take their jobs. A pension is basically you, you retire and basically the company pays you money pretty much not to work. Uh, wages are very good. Not just that, they start bringing in things like health care. That's a big thing nowadays. Well, before the Affordable Care Act. Uh, typically, you get your health care from your employer. That's something implemented during World... Sorry, not during World War II, but during the 50s. Because it was basically needed to keep workers with the company. Uh, they're, they're trying to think of other fringe benefits other than just paying them. Because they want workers to stay with the company. Because with unemployment so low, there's a real scare that you know this worker might work for another company. They might leave at just any given notice. So these big three auto companies become very huge, very prosperous, and they're giving that money to their employees. Another big company is IBM, International Business Machines. They start doing the first computers. Now, we're talking like the first, you know, fill up an entire room computers, uh, adding machines, and, you know, for just your biggest companies. But still, it's kind of their earliest, earliest computers. They're another very, very large corporation. Unions are also doing pretty well. Unions are also doing pretty well, although the protections they once had during the Depression and the war are going away. Uh, for instance, United Auto Workers, they work very closely with the big three, and they make sure that their workers are very well compensated. Uh, pretty much, companies are in a pretty magnanimous position. Uh, you know, Chevrolet, Ford, and Dodge know that there's pretty much nobody else out there who is building cars in the entire world. As long as demand remained high, which it did, uh, most companies were willing to view their unions as partners and not as opposition. This lasts pretty much until the 70s, uh, where pretty much most companies view unions as, you know what, we can work together, there's enough money out there, there's enough money for everybody. Uh, manufacturing overtook farming as a signature occupation of the Americas, but it wasn't just everything. If you go to one more slide, other agencies, other occupations are growing too. Um, the service industry was growing quite a bit. The service industry, which is now theoretically the dominant industry in the United States, and this time period, services is growing as well. Uh, for the first time, more and more Americans are eating meals not prepared at home. You never thought about this as an industry, really, but 
Prior to the 1950s, most Americans ate all their meals at home. But now more and more people are eating outside of the house. You have things like restaurants. Restaurants are really growing and with suburban sprawl. Things like drive-through restaurants or takeout restaurants really grows for the first time. Not just that, frozen food. Frozen food becomes really big. Uh, Frozen food was something that was kind of developed during the Great Depression, but really wasn't that viable because most people didn't have proper electric uh, refrigerator and freezer units. But now that these appliances are becoming much more common, more people are like heating up Swanson meals, you know, doing these TV dinners that basically you can eat at home and save yourself some cooking time. And not just that, new foods are coming in all over the place. Pretty much food of any ethnicity other than like, you know, Peas and ground meat, uh, pretty much spices and stuff are growing throughout the United States. Um, once again, I'm going to talk about my parents because they are definitely baby boomers. They're both born in 1950. I remember them both telling me when they were a kid, there was no seasoning other than salt and pepper. Like if you were to go to the spice aisle in a grocery store, you'd see like salt and pepper, maybe some garlic. And by the way, they're they're living in North Louisiana, Shreveport. So I'm sure maybe in South Louisiana, but. They're like, pretty much in North Louisiana, there was salt, pepper, and garlic on special occasions. But then as we go through the 60s and, the, you know, as you get to the late 50s and get into the 60s, more and more places are getting more and more ethnic foods. More and more seasonings are coming into vogue. All of a sudden, you have like a bigger spice aisle. Uh, foods that you might enjoy, like Chinese food, Chinese food. Um, You know, Asian food really comes into vogue in the United States, not just in Chinatowns, but across the country. Another one that's my personal favorite is pizza. For most Americans, they first discovered pizza in the 1950s. Uh, It had been pretty much uh, just a New York thing, but now thanks to the growth of the country and also the growth of takeout restaurants, more people are willing to eat pizza and they're discovering that it is delicious. Now, one of the foundational things for all this good things going on, if you go over one slide, is the GI Bill. Uh, The GI Bill is one of these pieces of legislation that's kind of an undercurrent of a lot of these changes in the 1950s. Um, It is probably one of the easiest slash best pieces of legislation. Easiest in the sense that there was very little debate about it at that time. Pretty much everybody saw that it was a pretty good idea, and my goodness, it had a lot of good impact. It was passed in 1944. It allowed veterans, it allowed veterans, basically those serving in the war, in addition to their compensation, it promised them stuff after the war was over. It basically said, after the war is over, you're going to get some free things. So what sort of things were promised by the GI Bill? Well, free health care was one. Uh, Low mortgages, low interest mortgages. Some of these early mortgages from the GI Bill are like a percent or less. Uh, Preference in hiring. They couldn't guarantee um, former veterans, former veterans, former soldiers, aka veterans, a job. They couldn't guarantee you a job. However, they could provide incentives for companies to hire veterans before other people. And the big one, free college education. Free college education. Uh, Prior to this time, college was seen very much as something for just the elite of the elite. Only the super rich went to college. Only the super rich went to college. Now, thanks to the GI Bill, you have a whole slew of new people going to college for the first time. Whole slew of people going over to college for the first time. And colleges are A-OK with it because they know the federal government is going to pay those bills. In fact, it shouldn't surprise you that uh, 
jobs in all of these industries, healthcare, you know, mortgage stuff, and just jobs in general, um, pretty much providing services for veterans cause all sorts of jobs to rise. Not just for the veterans, but for those supplying these services. Uh, for instance, tons of, tons of colleges get formed in this time period. It shouldn't surprise you that, for instance, Nichols State University was formed in 1948 as part of this post-GI Bill thing. Basically, like, wow, we got a lot of, uh, you know, former soldiers in the GI region. Sorry, the GI region. Former GIs in the Bayou region. There we go, in the Bayou region. They may not want to go to, like, you know, New Orleans or, or Baton Rouge for their college. If we build a school here, they'll probably come to there. And that's pretty much exactly what happens. Uh, not just that, because if, you, if one goes to college, uh, you're more likely to get a high-wage or high-prestige job. Uh, a lot of people who might not have otherwise gotten some of these very high-wage jobs, high-prestige jobs, were able to get them thanks to the GI Bill. So that's a pretty good thing. But also, something nice about the GI Bill, when it comes to like return on investment, when it comes to return on investment, the GI Bill is one of the best ROIs in U.S. history. For every dollar spent on the GI Bill, the U.S. government got back hundreds of dollars in taxes. Um, if you were to give me a, a you know a investment opportunity where for every dollar I put in, I get $100 back. No offense, I like you guys. I would quit every job I ever had to do nothing but that. And that's pretty much what happens with the GI Bills. Uh, these people who go to colleges, they get higher paying jobs. And because they have higher paying jobs, they pay more taxes. Not just that, uh, you could use the GI Bill, if you don't want to go to college, you could use that to start a business. Use that money to start a business as a loan. And you might have payroll. A uh, primo example of that from my own life is my grandfather, my paternal grandfather, my, my father's father. He used his GI Bill money. He didn't want to go to college, but he used his GI Bill money to start a plumbing business, um, actually a plumbing supply business. I believe it started out as a, it was either a five or $10,000 loan from the GI Bill. Uh, he paid that back and then some. I mean, he, he did very well for himself you know, employed hundreds of people for a while and was paying God knows how much in payroll taxes and you know, no, no telling how much his workers were paying in income taxes. I guarantee you it was a lot more than $5,000 or even $10,000. And especially over the decades that he had that business, uh, Uncle Sam got more than their money back for giving my grandfather that money to start his, um, his plumbing company. Not just that, you know, things like the mortgages, you know, by giving low interest loans for mortgages, home builders are doing a lot better because, hey, you know, there are people who can buy houses. Uh, by the way, let's talk about taxes for a second. We're going to go over one more. Let's talk about taxes. Um, taxes are actually pretty high during this time period. As in large, um, by and large, taxes are actually quite high, particularly on the most wealthy Americans. The most wealthy Americans actually had a fairly high tax rate. Uh, it's a pretty high tax rate during this time period. Why is that the case? Uh, the first one is residual New Deal World War II spending. Uh, they're still spending a lot of money from things like the New Deal and uh, World War II, just some of these taxes that were in place beforehand. They haven't really you know, cut back on all the spending yet. They weren't doing military spending, but they're still taking in revenue like they were. Another reason was that it was seen as necessary for government spending. Uh, during this time period, people like Eisenhower weren't really willing to do deficit spending, which, if you know anything about modern government in the United States, that's all we do is deficit spending. 
However, in this time period, the idea of the balanced budget, basically we're not going to spend more money than we take in, is kind of the norm. Uh, this is not to say we don't have a national debt. We do have a national debt back then. But still, it seems necessary for government spending to have fairly high taxes. You don't want to do deficit spending. I could get into this more, but here's what I want you to know. This results in a not that huge gap between the middle and rich um, classes. Like the living standard between middle classes and rich people really isn't that high during this time period because middle class people actually don't pay all that much in terms of taxes. Rich people do. Middle class people don't pay all that much in terms of taxes in this time period. And their material standards are not that different. The material standards of living between a very wealthy person and a middle class person during this time period really aren't all that different. Uh, the example I like to use is if you compare a Cadillac and a Chevrolet during this time period, they're virtually identical. I mean, yes, Cadillac is theoretically the top of the line model from General Motors. Uh, still, if you look at a Chevrolet or a Cadillac during this time period, you're going to see that it's actually, you know, fairly, fairly, fairly comparable. Uh, you're going to be reading. You're going to be reading a section for basically a quote-unquote average American during this time period. Talks about his tax bill and how much he pays for um, health insurance, and it's uh, it's comically low, especially if some of y'all are paying income taxes nowadays. So if you go one more one more slide, you will see the products of prosperity. Let's talk about the living standard during the 1950s. Um, it's actually pretty good. the The standard of living in the 1950s during the 1950s. Your average, everyday, middle-class American, read white, American could rightfully say he's living better than anybody else has in human history. And he'd probably be correct. He would probably be correct. Pretty much the living standard, you know, now that wages are pretty high, uh, the American living standard was higher than anywhere else in the, in the world in this time period. Um, living standard is high, wages are high, free time is high. You know, you have more of, you know, more things that were seen as luxuries prior to this time are now seen as, you know, basics, like a, a wife working at home. A single monoculture really starts to develop uh, a single monoculture. We're going to talk about this more in class, I suppose, or on your discussion board. But this idea of the monoculture being like your kind of middle class consumer, basic everyday culture. Uh, the two examples I like to give, because as soon as I say that, you'd be like, okay, I, I understand by monoculture. Something like Disney. Disney. Disney monoculture, the idea that like doesn't matter how rich, how poor you are, you're all going to go see Disney movies. You're all going to watch Walt Disney on TV, Magical World of Disney. You know, It doesn't matter how rich you are, it doesn't matter how poor you are, you can all go to Disneyland. Go to Disneyland, and you will you know, ride the same rides as the rich or the poor. Uh, another good example of this, probably the better example, is McDonald's. Uh, McDonald's really comes into vogue during this time period. It really expands from just you know one or two locations in California to across the entire country. And the idea being, you could go to a McDonald's anywhere in the United States, order a hamburger, and it's going to taste exactly the same. You know, yes, there might be better hamburgers out there, but there's definitely a lot worse hamburgers out there. And the idea that you're going to have this level of consistent quality, not necessarily quality, not necessarily high quality. I mean, I don't know if you've had a McDonald's hamburger nowadays, but there's better burgers out there. 
But the idea that, you know, it doesn't matter where you are, you're going to have McDonald's and it's going to taste exactly like McDonald's everywhere else. It doesn't matter how rich you are. It doesn't matter if you're in Hawaii or it doesn't matter if you're in Florida or in Wisconsin. A McDonald's Big Mac is going to taste like a McDonald's Big Mac no matter where you go. Uh, the demand for houses and things remain high. So most stuff bought by Americans were actually pretty new. Uh, the idea in the 50s was always to buy new uh Primo example of this is cars. Uh, the expectations for cars during the 1950s is to buy a new car every two years, probably for the best since American cars in the 1950s were not the best made. Um, once again, I'm going to throw Big George, my grandfather, over the bus because he did this. Uh, pretty much all of his life, he bought a new car every two years. He was like, nope, man, you know, you know. And it was kind of funny because my dad was like, you know, we once had a 57 Chevy, which if you know anything about, you know, 57 Chevys, those are like a very highly prized collector's item. And he's like, and in 1959, Big George traded in for a 59 Chevy, which was not as cool. And then he started getting Cadillacs. But it's just like, yeah, you just bought a new car every two years. And, and thanks to all the rising wages and all the new products out there, boomer children simply have more stuff than previous generations. I can't iterate that phrase enough. They just have more stuff. Is it higher quality? Eh, that's debatable. But is there more of it? undeniable. They simply have more things. Now, the signature piece of legislation, probably the, the crowning achievement of the Eisenhower administration, probably the longest lasting, probably the one that I think exemplifies the 50s, probably better than anything else, is the interstate highway system. Go over one more, you'll see the interstate highway system. Uh, Eisenhower actually got this idea from the German Autobahns. Uh, while he is in Europe during World War II, he hears about the German Autobahns, which he's like, wow, that's a really good idea. Um, and before this time period, U.S. infrastructure for roads was pretty dependent upon state funding, and as such, they were pretty bad. They were pretty bad. Um, also, U.S. highways in this time period, they were filled with like stoplights, crossovers, potholes, and he realizes, you know, because of the Cold War, if the Russians were to attack the United States, um, our driving infrastructure could not handle it. They could not handle it. So there were some other considerations other than the altruistic ones. Like, for instance, uh, city planners wanted to ease congestion and pollution, uh, particularly with things like suburbs developing. They want to figure out ways how can we get people out of the city centers? How can we make the cities less crowded? Uh, concrete makers and general contractors were salivating over big, fat federal contracts. I mean, just think about how much concrete or cement an interstate would use. Oh, my gosh, it's tons. Uh, unions liked the idea of the high-paying jobs that would certainly come by building the interstate. And truckers liked how new roads would make for speedier routes and higher profits. Uh, the idea that with an interstate, you could go from, like, one town to another without stopping. Uh, that's very appealing for truckers. You can go a lot faster, too, because you're not stopping as much. Uh, the Autobahns in Germany have no speed limit. Um, U.S. interstates do have speed limits, so don't speed, but they're considerably higher than most highways. Most highways top out at 55 miles an hour. Uh, the early days of the interstate is, I believe, 65 miles per hour. It goes down, then it goes back up. But this is going to cost a ton of money. It's going to cost a ton of money. So how do they get this passed? How do they get this passed? Well, the Cold War. <laughs> Pretty much the only way to get Congress to really spend this amount of money was basically talk about how this was a necessity for the Cold War. Uh, Eisenhower really played up the idea that if there was a nuclear attack, 
We would need roads to get from one major city to the other. We need ones that wouldn't stop, that were very high speed and high capacity. That's how he's able to really get Congress to go through with it, even though pretty much everybody in America understood this is going to be a pretty big spending thing, but it's going to be a fairly popular spending thing. If you go over one slide, you're going to see the original interstate system. Um, nowadays, there are more interstates, and also a lot of the bigger cities have more loops and things around them. But still, roughly speaking, this is the bare arteries of the interstate system. Upon its passage, it becomes the largest public works project in U.S. history. I believe it's still the largest public works uh, project in U.S. history. Crisscrosses the uh, entire nation. <coughs> the roads were free. The roads were free. These were freeways. Uh, you do not have to pay to get on an interstate. There are other roads you do have to pay on. There is no stopping on an interstate. You cannot stop on an interstate. You have to pull off to an on-ramp. And by the way, it has very limited access. Uh, you just can't get on an interstate anywhere. You have to go on and off certain on-ramps. It does take a while for the interstates to be finished. But once they do finish the interstates, boy, howdy. Boy, howdy, do interstates make a big impact once they're finished. Go over one slide. They change everything. The interstate changes everything. Uh, vacations change. That's a big one. You have your first motels, your first real motels. You can see a picture of a 50s-style motel in this time period, a motor hotel. Uh, the idea that the very middle-class idea is we're going to take the interstate, we're going to drive to our location. I mean, I, I don't know your class, you know, middle, low, or whatever, but I, I bet you've probably driven on an interstate to go to vacation. It's a very, very middle-class thing to do that had never been done before this time period. Um, places like South Florida grow. Um, you know, around here, like the Gulf Coast really starts growing. Commuting changes. Commuting changes immensely uh, because of things like suburbs. Now it's more viable to live in a suburb. Uh, the example I like to use, and I don't want to insult anybody, is Laplace. Uh, Laplace, if you're unfamiliar with Laplace, Laplace is right off I-10 on the other side of Lake Pontchartrain from New Orleans. I don't want to say everybody who lives in Laplace works in New Orleans, but a sizable percentage of the people who live in Laplace work in New Orleans. But they live in Laplace because, you know, uh, your money goes a bit further out there. It's less congested. It's less, you know, the depiction of crime or whatever than New Orleans. Your money goes a lot further. Motels, fast food, gas stations, other businesses also spring up next to the interstate. Think about it. If you go off inter any interstate on-ramp, you're going to see some of those businesses. Likewise, uh, manufacturing and other factories, they want to make sure they're close to interstates so that shipping is much easier. Because shipping is easier, it makes products even cheaper. This improves the economy. Uh, this is not as good of an ROI as the... As the um, as the GI Bill is, but it's also way more money involved. Uh, the GI Bill is fairly cheap compared to the uh, interstate highway system, and the interstate highway system, despite how much it costs, still makes back about, eh, I want to say between $15 to $17 for every dollar spent uh, back in taxes because of things like the businesses alongside the interstate and other taxes. But it is also seen as making the, uh, the cities and suburbs more homogenous. The idea that if you go off any interstate exit, you're going to see the same type of gas stations, the same type of food. It'll be the same McDonald's. Uh, commuters feel like they're becoming more isolated in their individual cars. You know, you're not living and working in the same place, so there's more of a disconnect between you know your weekends and your weekdays. So it's more alike, but they're also more lonely. And this kind of gets into the perils of prosperity. The perils of prosperity. If you go over one slide. 
you're going to see a fabulous picture of like a hundred dudes who all look exactly the same. hundred dudes all look exactly the same. Maybe two or three of them have like darker colored jackets. I think one has a bow tie, but the rest of them are all white dudes with the same haircut. I believe this is a college fraternity or a, like an engineering club during the 1950s. Conformity culture. There is a huge, and I mean huge, emphasis placed upon being alike and not rocking the boat. Uh, we had just won a war. Everything seems nice. The fear is, why are you trying to rock the boat? Why, why are you trying to mess everything up? You know, we, we, we fought a hard war. We, we lived through the Great Depression. Why are you trying to be an agitator? Why are you trying to mess up everything? Now, this manifests in, in a lot of different ways, in a lot of different ways. Um, an easy one to talk about is, if you go over one slide, religion. Religion gets really, really, really pushed in this time period. Church attendance is actually much higher than the 1950s than it has ever been before in U.S. history. This is not to say that the U.S. was not very religious beforehand. It was. But church attendance now becomes deemed a civic responsibility, honestly. Uh, the idea that you were a good citizen by going to church. You know, the idea that more people are going to church, part of this is an anti-communist thing because atheism is part of the communist platform. So if you don't go to church... You were deemed suspect. But still, a lot of churches kind of lean in more to this whole civic responsibility thing. Uh, they, they become a bit more friendly to pressures, more happier for Hooray America. Less hellfire and brimstone. Less hellfire and brimstone. Uh, primo example, this is a preacher by the name of Norman Vincent Peale does a thing called the power of positive thinking, which isn't really about the Bible so much. It's just about like, hey, think good thoughts and be positive and good things are going to happen to you. It's a very light and fluffy version of the gospel. Very light and fluffy version of the gospel. Now, how's this conformity? Well, if you don't go to church, and let's be real, Protestant church, they, they still thought Catholics were a bit suspect. You were deemed suspect. Uh, people were, you know, kind of uh, wary of you if you weren't going to church. So even if you had like religious differences or if you didn't necessarily believe or you didn't believe what, what was around, uh, people were doing this. People were expecting you to go to church in some form or fashion. Hate to talk about my grandfather again, but why not? I'll talk about Big George again. Uh, after the war, he apparently he saw a lot of bad stuff in the war. So he kind of was atheistic or agnostic, I, I suppose. Um, he had some really serious religious doubts. Uh, before the war, he was, he was apparently very devout, but after seeing what he saw in World War II, he was uh, not as keen on organized religion. So he wouldn't go to church, but he always would make sure that he was seen dropping off his sons, my, my, my dad and his brothers, at church every Sunday morning so he wouldn't be accused of um, you know being subversive. And plus, he owned a business, and it was good for keeping up appearances. So... Although my dad said his dad never really went into church that he could remember, he was like, he always made sure to make a pretty big deal of dropping us off on the front steps so he could be seen as being a, a good American. Uh, another thing where conformity was pushed, if you ever one slide, is for women. Women are really encouraged not to work and be more sub submissive and supportive to their husbands. Now, remember, uh, for most women before this time, they had to work anyway, so now it's like it's, you have the option not to work. But if a woman wanted to work, that was viewed as very suspect. It was viewed as very suspect. 
And when women did work, because some women did work, some women did work, and they, they did choose to work, uh, there's very much an upper limit to how high they could rise in a company. Even if they were very, very adept, even if they were very adept, there's a big, um, I don't want to use the word taboo, but there was hesitancy about giving a woman a man's job, or the idea that a woman is a superior to a man. Uh, if you're a woman with a college education, pretty much there are only two jobs available to you. You could be a teacher or you could be a nurse. Uh, and a lot, of those, a lot of those jobs, particularly teaching jobs, you could actually be fired once you were married. Uh, if you ever got married, you were expected to leave your teaching job. Uh, this resulted in women feeling very disillusioned in it all. Uh, women feeling very disillusioned because they didn't necessarily like suburban life. They didn't necessarily like being a housewife. Uh, particularly for the women who went to college. Particularly for the women who went to college. They're like, wow, I went to college, you know, and I like my husband. Don't get me wrong. I like my husband. I like my kids. But is this all there is to it? You know, if this is all there is to it, why did I go to college? You know, if I enjoy my work, uh, you're, you're going to be shamed. Is something wrong with me? And what if you don't like your children? I mean, I, I love my son, but, you know, sometimes you may not like your kids. Sometimes your kids may be little snots. I mean, my kid's only five, so hopefully he's not a little snot. But what if you don't like your children? What if your children don't give you fulfillment, but society's telling you you need to do that? Likewise, these, fem these women feel very isolated in their suburban lives. That's something you're going to hear a lot about the 50s, this idea of isolation. You know, the men feel isolated driving in their cars to, to jobs and feeling disconnected from everything. And then women feel pretty disconnected too, just living in the suburbs. You know, there's nothing really around you. Staying in your house all day. There's not, not even really that much work to do because appliances are going to do most of it. So they've a lot of disillusionment. Uh, another one, if you go over, well, I don't have a slide for this because I'll be talking about it much, much more later in a different class, is race. Uh, there starts to be more action about civil rights. Brown v. Board comes in 57. We'll talk about that a lot later in another class. <clears throat> but issues with race are being uh, really, really talked about more. So if you're like a white, middle, or upper class man, you're, you're theoretically happy with your life. But that's pretty much the only people who are happy with American society. Yet American society is really pushing them to be the only people. So, in summation, okay, like, even though McCarthy was disproved, like, even though, like, you know, the Joseph McCarthy, the hearings about communism, even though he was disproved, uh, th there was still a residual sense that Americans did not want to get out of line. You know, even though McCarthy died, um, you know, humiliated, uh, kind of shamed, most Americans, they, they're like, we don't want to rock the boat. And as long as the economy is pretty good, most were willing to wait. Uh, women were willing to wait a bit, it seems. Poor people were willing to wait. African-Americans were willing to wait up to a point. But what about those who want the rights? What about those who are willing to not, just not rock the boat? Willing to rock that boat? Well, next class, we talk about civil rights. So for that, this is Dr. Tully for History 327.